0: chapter 10 this morning, Ezra chapter 10. And we uh, skipped uh, uh, our study in Ezra uh, last uh, week because of Resurrection Sunday, but uh, uh, chapter 9 and this chapter also kind of form a unit. Uh, the problem was introduced in Ezra chapter 9. We'll have a, a proposed solution in Ezra chapter 10. And the question is, Uh, Is the solution the right solution? Is the solution the right solution? uh, There's definitely sin that had to be reckoned with, but the question chapter 10 poses, did they deal with it completely and according to God's plan? Some Bible commentators, and this is a a particular chapter that uh, I think uh, for me it was uh, a bit of a... Uh, struggle to begin with because I read other, uh, sermons and, uh, commentators and, uh, uh, they come up with a, a completely different type of, a, uh, an answer to some of these things. They think the solution is not ideal, but it was the best under the circumstances. Others, uh, think it was a choice between two, uh, a lesser of two evils. And yet, as I could not reconcile those, this solution with the rest of Scripture. And so I trust the Lord will give us understanding of this passage in the context of the whole counsel of God's Word. And to understand the actions described in this chapter, we must first understand the problems faced by Ezra and the nation, and that these problems were very real, and these problems still exist today. The Mosaic law had been expressly forbidden the Israelites to intermarry with the people of the land. Uh, they were uh, idolatrous people, and uh, the law forbid them to do that, but they did it anyway. And so we see, first of all, a an unequal union. The scriptures explicitly warn against being unequally yoked Together with an unbeliever second Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 says be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion hath light with darkness and with what or, and what concord hath Christ with Belial and what part hath he that believeth with an infidel and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, this passage does not specifically mention marriage. It speaks instead of any kind of tie which we might bind ourselves together with another person. It could be uh, uh, some other uh, type of relationship, a business relationship, or or something in in that sense. But as such, we do many times apply this to various types of of relationships. And you know, there is no closer tie that can bind two people in life than the tie of marriage. (coughs) Uh, When a man and a woman enter into marriage, they become a single, unified entity. They become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 tells us. And for a believer to enter into such a relationship with an unbeliever is the height of foolishness. And yet I have seen such an unhappy union take place again and again throughout the years of my ministry. So you have an unequal union. But then you have the issue of idolatry. The people here, as we see, uh, were resettling in the land of Canaan, and the people there in Canaan were rooted in idolatry. Polytheism was the order of the day. People generally worshipped a wide variety of gods. These people, um, pagan people, had heard of the Lord. Uh, they had heard about the God of the Jews, and so they reasoned that, well, perhaps the Israel's God was a God, they uh, could have some influence on their land, and so for that reason, they just added God uh, Israel's God to the long list of gods that they worshipped. Uh, this was pluralism at its worst. Uh, we've noted that this is also called synchronism. They reasoned that the God of Israel was only one of many f- gods, and so they just added that God to their gods. Archaeologists in recent years have found evidence of people of the land engaged in this sort of pluralistic worship. They've found indications of the worship of God mixed in with the worship of other pagan gods. It's kind of like the fellow who wears a cross along with a star of David and a rabbit's foot. Makes a lot of sense, right? No. He's treating the Lord as though he's nothing more than a good luck charm. And so the returning Jews under Zerubbabel had resisted the invitation of these people to be involved in the rebuilding of the temple, even though it meant the arousal of their enmity and open hostility. But now something much worse has taken place. The Jews have taken many of these unbelieving pagans into their own families. There's an entire generation of Jews had been raised by pagan mothers. And there's a principle here, the principle of the primacy of spiritual parents. If you're a parent, then the question of whether the next generation will be Christian or pagan depends a great deal upon you. It's not to deny the sovereignty of God and salvation, but the Lord works out his plans through his people, and parents are often the means through which he works. Ezra looks at this, and he realizes that the entire nation is in danger of being led into apostasy, and what is at stake is nothing less than the salvation of the world. If there is no believing generation, it would not be long before there was no Israel. And if there's no Israel, then there can be no Messiah. And if there's no Messiah, there would be no salvation, and the entire world would remain in its sin. So this is a serious serious situation. And so we began here with a mournful meeting, a mournful meeting. Verse one says, now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel, a very great congregation of men and women and children for the people wept very sore. Now, no sermon was being preached. No legislation had been passed. No decree had been issued. And yet a great assembly gathers and they go into mourning. Why? Because of a single man praying. An entire nation is brought to its knees beginning with a prayer of a single man. And there's a principle here that's at work as well. And that is that prayer does work. It's probably the highlight of this chapter. Prayer will move God. If it did not, then we should not even bother praying, for there would be no expectation of answer. But the Bible tells us that God does hear the prayer and that he acts upon it. And as one bumper sticker proclaimed, God takes requests. Prayer moves the people of God. And because God is the one who changes hearts, a prayer to him is able to bring about a change in the heart as well of another. And the principle has some very important ramifications. It means that if you have a problem with another Christian, you should not neglect praying for them. You know, if someone has offended you, the best thing you can start doing is praying for them. But there's a question here. Just because you pray, does that mean whatever happens next is approved of God? Just because you prayed about it and then something happened, is that thing going to be approved of God? And that's what a question I want you to keep in mind here. That brings us to a suggested solution. You see, Ezra realized the sin of. His people, and we said back in chapter nine that he confessed not only uh, the sin uh, for the people, but he included himself in that sin, even though he hadn't committed the sin. But he knew that there was a problem here, and that was the intermarrying of uh, into the uh, pagan uh, people of uh, the land where they were living. And so in verses two through four, we have a suggested solution. It says in verse two, and Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and taken strange wives of the people of the land, yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and to those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise for this manner belongeth unto thee. We also will be with thee, be of good courage and do it. The situation was serious as we pointed out the spiritual future of the entire nation is at stake here the drastic solution calls for equally or drastic situation calls for an equally drastic solution the question we must ask is whether this is the correct solution when the israelites write in divorcing their pagan wives now the passage does not specifically say and there is arguments for either side My question is, was this a plan of God, or was it a mistake? Another question, can leaders, godly leaders, make mistakes? I've found in my experience, men who've been godly men have made mistakes. That's why you should never put your full trust in a man. A man is going to disappoint you at some point in your, in your life. God will never disappoint you. You can always trust the Lord. But even the most godly man, the most revered man, the most respected man, is still a sinner saved by grace. And leaders can make mistakes. I've made my share of mistakes, and I don't think I'm quite done yet. The Lord hasn't come I'll probably make some more. Now, at first glance, you might think the absence of condemnation says, well, this is an approved plan, especially in light of the fact that Ezra kind of closes on this note. On the other hand, there's an indication, no indication, that this was the right thing to do. And if Nehemiah is seen as a continuation of Ezra, then it is possible that this was merely a problem along the way which was not satisfactorily resolved at the time. We do see Ezra agreeing to the plan after a long time of prayer. But notice it was not the Lord that reveals the plan to Ezra. And I know the Lord can use people to reveal things to us and to help us to answer questions, but we do not have an indication that the Lord was the one that revealed this to him. It was this fellow called Shekaniah. It was suggested by someone who was not a prophet. And the nation was in danger of falling into idolatry. Deuteronomy chapter 7 specifically forbids this intermarriage. And yet it's never right to do wrong, to get an opportunity to do right. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14 has a scathing indictment against Israel for this practice of divorce. We see here that nearly the entire nation agreed to this proposal. Is the majority always right? I think you know the answer to that one. No, majority opinion is no guarantee of righteousness. Hey, remember the report of the ten spies in Kadesh Barnea? They came back with, you know, oh, we can't go in there. It's too much. But there were two spies that said, you know, we can do this. So the majority is not always right. And the actions of Ezra and the nation marked a return to the observance of the law. The New Testament confirms that believers are to remain married to an unbelieving spouse, according to what our scripture text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12 through 14. And then you notice that there is already a new generation growing here with pagan roots, and again, 1 Corinthians 7:14 tells how maintaining such a mixed marriage can have a positive effect upon the children. In 1 Corinthians 7:14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband else were your children unclean but now are they holy. And the book of Malachi was written only a few years following the decisions that were made in this chapter. And it's therefore to be considered to be a commentary upon the actions of what we read here. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 11 says, Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange god. This is an indictment of the very condition that is described right here in Ezra chapter 10. Apparently the problem did not immediately disappear following the mass divorces that are at the end of this chapter. But Nehemiah 13.23 tells us the same pattern of intermarriage with pagans began to be adopted by some of the Israelites in Nehemiah's day. Nehemiah's reaction was not to order this mass divorce, but instead urged the people to stop entering into the future marriages with the pagan Gentiles. Stop it. Just don't go into this uh, kind of practice anymore. He also removed the high priest who had become a relative through marriage to one of those pagan enemies of Israel. Uh, We're going to go through Nehemiah next, the Lord willing, and we'll see some of this uh, because it follows so great with Ezra. But Malachi goes on to address the particular problem of divorce. Malachi 2.13 says, And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, and with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it good with good will at your hand. Yet ye say, Wherefore, because the Lord hath di- uh, been "...witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he... Hateth putting away. He hateth putting away. He hateth divorce. And for one covering covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts, therefore take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. Now this passage almost, could almost be taken as a direct indictment against the decisions and the decree of Ezra. Ezra, I believe, was a godly man. But I think he was mistaken in accepting this solution. And under the cover of their tears of repentance and the fraught with weeping and with groaning, the Jews made a grave decision to divorce their Gentile wives, even though they had entered into those marriages by covenant. And so it's in the midst of those actions that the Lord stands as a witness against them. He proclaims in no uncertain terms that he hates divorce, and the, the one who proceeds with such a divorce is doing it quite apart from the leading of the Spirit. Now, as far as the conclusion of this, I think there are two possibilities or two possible interpretations, I think. One is that the decision of Ezra and the people of Israel was a correct though difficult one. And although they did the right thing, it carried its own negative consequences as later generations used it it as an excuse to casually divorce their own wives. And so again, here's where some would believe that they're picking the lesser of two evils. And I might say that negative consequences of divorce many times is that The children think, well, mom and dad got a divorce, so I guess I can get a divorce too. There's nothing wrong with it. They got by with it, so I guess I can get by with it. But the Malachi passage would then point out a problem for the next generation. And they saw they used these divorces of the previous generations to participate in unwarranted divorces themselves. Now there's another interpretation, and that is, though they had the best intentions in seeking to repent and to return from their sinful attitudes, Ezra and the people of Israel took a bad situation and made it worse. And they instigated these across-the-board divorces, and as a result, they lost the opportunity to be an influ- influence for righteousness to a lost generation. And to be consistent with the rest of Scripture, I have to believe the second interpretation is the correct one. Many would not agree with me, and you may not agree with me this morning. You may read people and say, well, that's, you know, it's okay, you know, because it's better to get a divorce than to get into idolatry. But that doesn't, isn't consistent with the rest of Scripture. Now look at verse 5 and 6. It says, Then arose Ezra and made the chief priests, the Levites, and all the Israel to swear that they should do according to this word, and they swear. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of John, John, Jonahan, uh, the son of Elishab. And when they came thither, he did eat no bread nor drink water, for he mourned because of the transgression of them that had been carried away. A solemn oath here is made and you notice Ezra begins his program of reformation and revival he approaches first the leading priest and then the Levites and then finally all of Israel now I believe even though Ezra is making the wrong choice to the solution here he's doing I think what he thinks is best and there is some valuable principles that have been said here do you want to see revival in our church If you do, then you pray for your leaders. You pray for your pastor, your deacons, and your Sunday school teachers. If you want to see revival in this church, then you need to pray for those who are in leadership. See, that's where Ezra started. He approached first the leading priests, and then the Levites, and then finally all of Israel. And as go the leaders of our church, so will go our church. And the same is principle is true of the nation. You want to see revival in our nation? Then you need to pray for our leaders, even if you disagree with them. You need to pray for them. As the leaders of the nation go, so goes the nation. You know, liberalism has crept into churches through the doors of Bible colleges and seminaries. These schools began teaching that the Bible contains historical errors, and the next generation of pastors were a generation who did not believe the Bible was the Word of God. And the same process is at work here in Ezra. It was the same process that takes place in a family. Fathers influence the family. Parents influence the children. Parents lead by example. Whether it's a good example or a bad example, they're going to lead their children. Your children will learn a lot more from what you do than from what you say. You want revival, then you need to pray for leadership. Then there's a mandatory assembly takes place, verse 7 and 8, and they made proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem unto all the children of the captivity that they should gather themselves together into Jerusalem, and that whatsoever should not come within three days, according to the counsel of the princes and the elders, and all the substances should be forfeited, and himself separated from the congregation of those that had been carried away. So important was this situation that Ezra made it mandatory that all should attend, and to overcome the possible apathy that he might face, he tied the meeting in with economic ramifications, and Ezra had been given a great deal of authority from the king of Persia, and now he does not hesitate to use that authority. And that brings us to the decision of the people. Verse 9, Then all the men of Judah and of Benjamin gathered themselves together into Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the street of the house of God, trembling because of this manner for, and for a great rain. And Ezra, the priest, stood up and said unto them, Ye have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession unto the Lord God of your, of your fathers and do this pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. And then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, we must do. But the people are many and is a time of much rain, and we are not able to stand without, neither is it a work of one day or two, for we are many that have transgressed in this thing. Let now our rulers of all the congregations stand. Let them which have taken strange wives in our cities come at appointed times, and with them the elders of every city and the judges thereof, until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us. I think it was about the fall of the year, perhaps, and it was raining, it was a little cooler And these uh, uh, people were gathered in the cold rain. It was a very somber time. And they were shivering because they were getting wet. But Ezra got up to address them, and the climate matches his words. There are two parts to his speech. What they have done, they have been unfaithful. And this is the issue. It's not so much the means of their unfaithfulness, but the fact that their unfaithfulness... Uh, of their faithfulness is what's at issue. God said not to do something, and they did it anyway. They disobeyed. So we see what they have done, but then what are they to do? Well, first of all, they're to make confession to God. Again, confession means agreeing with God that you have sinned and that you stand guilty and condemned without excuse. And how different this this is from the spirit of the age in which we live in, and the people saying, "Well, I didn't do anything wrong," and if I did offend you, you know, if I if you think I did something wrong, I promise I won't do it again. And just just listen to the confessions of uh, politicians who get caught in their sins. I mean, it's terrible. I didn't do anything wrong, but you know, I, I promised not to do it again. Well, if you promised not to do it again. It must have been wrong in the first place. You see, confession is agreeing with God that we have sinned. And then secondly, we need to do His will. Repentance involves more than just change of mind. It involves a commitment to turn from sin and turn unto righteousness. As the hymn reminds us, we must trust and obey. And then thirdly, separate from the unfaithfulness. Now, we're to separate from that which hinders our spiritual walk. Jesus said that such separation means that we're to place the Lord before children, before spouses, before parents. And He is to be the object of our first loyalty. We're to put Jesus Christ first in our lives, a loyalty of such magnitude that anything else would be hatred by comparison. So one might ask, well, were these men correct in putting away or divorcing their pagan wives, separating from them? Again, I have to say no. That would be inconsistent of what we've been taught in other scriptures. I would say in considering the full counsel of God I would have to suggest that each of these men should have gone home and told his heathen wife honey I have been a terrible witness just the very fact that we got married when we ought, uh, we were not to be a follower we are not a follower of the Lord is a demonstration of my rebellion boy it's hard for us men to admit when we're wrong doesn't it That's what needed to be done here. These men ought to said, you know, I have done something wrong. I have sinned. But we're going to start from the point we are right now. And so here's the deal. I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to walk in righteousness from now on. Our children are going to be raised in the ways of God. Your idols will be removed from our house. And we're not going to go to any of your family sacrifices. Woo! He's living dangerously, isn't he? Now, at that point, I think the heathen wife could choose to serve the Lord with her husband, or she could have chose to leave, but divorce was not the answer. Now, why do I say that? It's because I think there wasn't a minority opinion here. Look at verse 15. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashel and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, were employed about this ma- were employed about this manner. And Meshulam and Shabbatiah the Levi helped them. Hey, there were those who opposed the plan. Now it's kind of difficult to really read their hearts here. Was this opposition because of worldliness on their part? Or was it Could it have been that they felt divorce in any case was wrong and be avoided? I think I would have been with these guys. Did they feel the solution was worse than the problem? Now, we don't really know that. But as I've indicated, I'm not entirely certain as to how we should judge the actions of this passage. But I do find it curious that there were voices of opposition And there is nothing negative said about these men. There's nothing said here that says these men were wrong in their opposition. And furthermore, the words of Malachi concerning divorce seem to support this minority view. And I may be in the minority in my understanding of this passage, but I don't believe I've been inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. And so we come to the conclusion of the whole matter. Verse 16 and 17, And the children of the captivity did so. And Ezra the priest, with certain chief of the fathers after the house of their fathers, and all of them by their names, were separated and sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. And they made an end with all the men that had taken strange wives by the first day of the month. These investigations took a p- place over a period of two months, probably from about... November to January and the fact that these overly long investigations might lend some credence to the speculation that not all of these mixed marriages ended in divorce each case seems to have been treated individually otherwise they would have been completed in a day or so I can't help but think of two women that were not considered to be godly women at one point, but they are in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ, Rahab and Ruth. And the Jews may have concluded that a Gentile wife who's demonstrated faith in the Lord is now a genuine member of the covenant. And so their marriage was appropriately sanctioned by the, the leaders. And at this point, we come full sto- uh, s- a circle in the story. We began with a report of intermarriage that had taken place of the last verses, now cl- close with a solution to that problem. And again, it's a, a solution that I don't believe is one that God would have sanctioned, but God allowed. He later on would have a scathing report against it. But we have a list here of all those who were had taken strange wives from verse 18 to verse 43, and I'm not going to read it this morning. But I will say in verse 44, all these had taken strange wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. There were not only wives who were affected by this situation, there were also children, and that happens more times than not. I think it brings up us another principle here. It is that sin is never private. It invariably will involve someone else, and a sin between two consenting adults never remains solely between those adults. It inevitably overflows and spills into the lives of others, and sadly, it flows into the lives of children. No one ever really wins in a divorce situation. The parents lose, and certainly the children lose. And it's damage that, and really, in a sense, cannot be undone. Sin can be forgiven, but the scars are going to remain. And I believe Ezra chapter ten is one of the saddest chapters of all the of, in the Bible. There are no winners here; it's a lose-lose situation. This sin hurt everyone. It hurt the husbands, it hurt the wives, and it hurt the children. And our sin today will do the same thing. We might not always see the consequences so clearly, and we might not always be. It might not always be so obvious. But you know what? Sin separates us from God. It leaves us in total despair. The stain of our sin follows us the rest of our lives sometimes. And we never are like what we were before. Now, I don't agree with Shekinah's solution. I don't believe God agreed with it because of what he said later in other passages. But you know what? I will agree with him about one thing. Go back to verse two. It says, or actually it's in verse, um, yes, it's in verse two. We have trespassed against our God. We have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now, his hope was the bad solution. But I will agree that there is hope. God has made a way of escape. The death of Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin, and the blood of Jesus washes away the stain of our sin. We can be made pure and holy, and in His arms we can find a new beginning. I wish that the many of these men who are listed here would have found a new beginning, and they had taken a stand for God in their homes and not separated themselves from their their wives. Whatever your situation is this morning, there is hope. We need to put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be faithful to obey His Word. And we need to be careful that we don't just pick out a passage of Scripture and say, well, see here? They put away their wives. It must be okay. No, you better read all the Bible about that on that subject. You better read whatever the Bible says on that subject, and then you can come to an understanding of what the Lord wants us to do. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven,